Hello again. Howdy. Hey, Brett, we're sitting farther apart today. It's odd for me. Here, let me move closer. Okay, all right. One day we're going to release the video version of the A-B Testing Podcast. People will see our faces and never again. It'll be the final episode. Maybe for number 100, we should do a video. Okay. I'm kidding. People don't want that. Yeah. Welcome to A-B testing. (laughs) Testing. Yeah, we just put an explicit flag in. (laughs) No, no, no. So anyway, uh, A-B testing, the podcast for software development, software testing, data stuff, experimentation, leadership, test management, quality, quality leadership, and most lately, modern testing. And Brent's laughing at me, which is par for the course. If you're new, welcome. If you're not, you're used to this stuff. So thanks for tuning in again. I think it's episode 85. Is that it, correct? It is. 85. But really, we didn't figure it out till about 60. So maybe it's only 25. There were some good ones before then. Uh, you know, 60 is when we really started off on the, the modern testing theme. I don't want to say 60 because we'll come up with something new eventually. That'll be the uh, the shiny thing for A-B testing. And then we'll say that's the new number. Sounds good, Brent. Right. I'm bringing up. I got it while we're podcasting here. Uh, Uruguay and France are playing. I just need to check on the score. I have lost it. I'll bring it up sometime when Brent's talking. It's halftime. So, yeah, it's World Cup time. I'm going to cheer for Uruguay. Ah, vive la France. Les bleus. Nah. <laughs> so, uh, we have been talking about the modern testing principles, which you can read on moderntesting.org. And today we're going to talk about number four, which we'll get to in just a second. Uh, anything uh, else I should be caught up on before we get started, Brent? No, let's just dive in this time. Wow. I know. People are so changing u- it up. People are going to fast forward. Go, Wait, they're already talking about it. What happened to their stories of bunnies and squirrels? Okay, uh, Brent, do you have uh, principle number four loaded up where you can see it? I can't because uh, the company where you work, Microsoft, is too cheap to let anyone who doesn't work there have access to Wi-Fi while they're in the building unless they get like someone to hold their hand and sign their life away. So yeah, anyway, I have no... It takes inter- a, a freaking two clicks. Yeah, and wait for an email to come through those shitty exchange servers you and guys use. And you have a phone. I'm looking at it right now. I, yeah, it's, it's a phone. Anyway, oh, all right. I'm done making fun of Microsoft for now. So can <laughs> right, you number four. please share principle number four? Number four. Dun, dun, dun. We care deeply about the quality culture of our team, and we coach, lead, and nurture the team towards a more mature quality culture. Awesome. Two big takeaways for me we're going to dive into. I want to make sure we talk about the why it's important. We'll talk about what it is and a whole bunch of how, but there's two big pieces. One is quality culture. We're going to have to define the crap out of that because that can mean about 10 different things to five different people. And the other one is this aspect of leadership where I think people leading teams towards modern testing principles, whether or not that's the current or former test slash QA person, we need to not be passive and not wait for work to come to us like maybe we did 15 years ago. Uh, In leading a team towards a modern testing culture, there's a lot of aspects of leadership you need to be able to do to get that to happen. And the third call that I'm going to say that um, I think one of our earlier iterations had this explicitly, but principle number four is in our list. It's the community principle. So the leadership is not just, you know, leading by example and being the best tester on the team. Creating a community of quality. Yes. Creating and sustaining a community of quality. Anyone can create a community. Let's start with quality culture, since that's probably going to take 85% of the episode today. (laughs) Uh, In various forms, what is a quality culture? Uh, You'll get three different answers from the quality. Oh, very good. Very good. We are also the Tautology podcast. Or not. Oh, (laughs) ponder, ponder, ponder. The one thing I think, I think, I'll put in one 
I think it would be a good idea here because between the two of us, right, it, it's it's Alan is by far one of the best community builders I have ever worked with, seen, and observed. But it's, the one thing I think is super important when, when we call out here, any time – there is, uh, and I, I think this is this is missed a lot, and I think we probably need to explicitly call it out. Um, anytime we talk about the word quality, just want to make sure the listeners understand, I am not talking about bugs. I am not talking about code correctness. Um, these are separate concepts not mutually uh, but they are separate to me a quality culture is around how do we build up a strong a active and a for lack of a better word a non-intuition based um, and I'll, I'll just add another uh, useful view of user empathy within the organization. This is about, uh, for lack of a better word, feelings in, in a lot of regards. Um, caring about the problems that our customers have. Remember, care and quality are two sides of the same coin. They are. They are. I mean, um, quality, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, there was a uh, an old podcast that you mentioned something from your music history about art. And you mentioned that art is something that uh, creates emotion. Or, or And the quality of art is in the interpretation from the user. Yeah, you mentioned some piece. I'm sure you you have it on the top of your head where there's like 17 measures of just nothing but silence. Well, there's uh, the John Cage four minutes and 33 seconds, which is just in three movements, which is just silence. But the but the music, the art is the audience's reaction to that silence. There was a thing in the early 20th century called danger music, where uh, the music, the art was uh, maybe these boxes you had to reach your hand into, you couldn't see inside, and some had uh, fur and cotton, and some had broken glass and razor blades. But the art was in your interpretation, of your reaction to the, the value is in your reaction to the art. Quality, is that not a, a very similar definition? Yeah, it, I, it, it is. It's, 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 a lot of it is, is the user reaction mm-hmm. to what... You've built. Right. And you've made the metaphor, or maybe it's not a metaphor, many times. Like, what's what's higher quality? The product with very few users but no known bugs or the or the feature product with a lot of bugs but 100,000 users? Yeah. I like to talk about Christopher Alexander, Alexander when, I, when I bring this up. Right? He talks about um, these positive and negative forces. Right and then um, do the force are the forces aligned such that that the person interacting with the the system at play or the in his case the architecture are they guided towards uh, positive thoughts or, or or negative? An example I'll bring up is uh, he once got called into a house and. They had a, a kitchen with two double doors. Uh, from the double doors from the kitchen, you got to a patio. Then there was a staircase down to a lower patio. And he put, or the, there was a little picnic table on that lower patio. And he found out that no one used it. They never, they, it was clear from the intent, right? They intended to have outdoor meals, but they didn't. And so he looked at it, and he just said, oh, okay. 
He got a crew, um, put the picnic table up on the upper deck, and that fixed the whole problem. The issue uh, uh, that he identified is, hey, one of the forces is in order to have a meal there, you had to transfer the, the food. And going up and down the stairs created enough of a friction that they didn't enjoy the table. And it, it didn't take much. Like you, you could go, oh, it's, oh, it's so easy to work around this. No, it's, it's if you just have a little bit of negative um, force, it just changes the entire scenario. Agreed. So <laughs> let me rewind the stack a little bit. Uh, yeah. I think I like the way you brought it up or, or the, you mentioned community because community and culture have a lot in common. It's uh, shared mindset, shared practices, shared values, shared vision, shared goals. A lot of sharing. A lot of sharing. But because you want a culture means people are – a quality culture can't just be the, a, a person going, let's have higher quality. No. It- <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, this is about, you know, as, as Barney says, sharing is caring. And knowing that the muscle memory of, of the the group of folks that you are working with is heading towards the same, for lack of a better word, goal. Because a lot of the times these goals are emergent. They're not clearly understood up front. Sure. We've talked about this before. They're adaptive challenges versus technical problems. Technical problems, all it is is an implementation thing. You got to figure it out. You got to look up some algorithms, whatever, you're done. Adaptive challenges, you don't know the answer when you start. You have to learn it as you go along. And a lot of culture things fall in that direction. You have beliefs, for sure, but you, you don't, um, don't want to stick to them if, you've, if you, you want to be able to, to adapt to new knowledge gained. Yeah, when um, when starting on culture, and I, I'm going to get into my definition in a second because I actually created one for better for or for it. worse. But I'm reminded of a Weinberg quote where he says, unless and until all members of a team have a common understanding of the problem, attempts to solve the problem are just so much wasted energy. And I think quality culture fits into that as well as a technical problem. You need to have, there's this ad car model, which fits into this as well. Let me talk about that for a minute. This is from... Uh, consulting company called Proschi, P-R-O-S-C-I. Anyway, uh, the model seems to work pretty well for culture change. Talks about awareness of the problem. Like, okay, we need to have higher quality. There's the desire. Well, actually, awareness is, yeah, quality is bad. There's a desire to change the problem. Okay, we want to improve. But until you can go, each step builds another one. Once you have awareness and desire, you need knowledge. You need, maybe it's knowledge of tools or, or things you may need to implement. Uh, and then you need ability. You need the ability to do those things. So maybe you need some training in a, in how to learn how to use Jenkins for CI or, or whatever. Maybe you want to put some other tools into your CI pipeline. Maybe you just want to get – maybe people need some coaching or training on some uh, agile concepts. Or maybe they just need practice. But you have, you have awareness, desire, knowledge, ability, and then finally you need a way to retain those practices. You need repeatability. So it's a it's a – a model that I like to use for thinking about how to move through changes. Awareness, desire, desire knowledge, ability, retain. Okay. Well, usually when I go into these speeches, I start with just two. It's, it's motivation and ability. But uh, I think that... Uh, and motivation definitely... Well, it, you can't have motivation without the, without the awareness. So it just, just puts a few extra uh, stats around those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the definition of quality culture I wrote, and there are, again, it's not perfect. It's the one I use. It's a shared mindset that delivering high-quality software to customers is our top priority and that all of our practices support this effort. Yeah. Um, I'm absolutely fine with that. Because it's vague and means nothing until you dive into the details. Yeah, the one thing... This is the thing I think we need to hit hard on, on, as I've already mentioned in this episode, right? What is quality? And, or more importantly, I think perhaps is what is, what isn't quality, right? Um, So 
it is quality. I, I can't hit this enough. I think I'm going to be repeating this until I die. Um, bugs and quality are not in any way, shape, or form synonyms or antonyms or related. One of those nims. Okay, good. <laughs> so point made. Yeah, I, I the way I uh, think of it is getting people closer to understanding the the problems uh, that users are facing, how the software organization is geared to solve it, and how we're staying current. Because as we as we release, we've already talked about um, the the need for continuous deployment, the need for continuous integration, small batches. Mm-hmm. Those are small little tests to say, hey, customers, are you happier? And then, and then sort of a discussion around, okay, why or why not? You have backed into an important question we need to answer. So I'm going to interrupt with the question let you continue. Yep. So why is the quality culture important? You actually already started answering it if you didn't realize it. Why is it important to have a quality culture? Why is this a principle? Why do we think it's so important? Okay. Do you want me to help you out? Yeah, I, I'm not connecting the dots. <laughs> so w- the reasons that a quality culture are important, and small batches contribute to a co- higher quality culture, if you're able to deliver quickly, we want to get feedback from our customers more often. We want to be able to understand and react to what they're doing. We want, And at the same time, we want to reduce risk in our ability to do that. Yeah, quality I, culture helps with the, those things and many more, but you're talking about those. Realize that's part of a quality culture. And in order to function in the way we want to function and to keep and retain and engage more users, we need that high quality culture. And the key thing I think you talked about just a second ago is uh, – actually, I, I love how you phrased that – a bit surprised I, I, you started I, I, off attributing it to me. I flustered it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going, Alan. Like the continuous deployment, we talked about it uh, in some regards with respect to risk minimization, right? This is this is one of the reasons why companies hire testers today. Uh, they're kind of like an insurance yes. on the product. Right. Okay? I will pay N thousands or millions of dollars to do N amount of testing to reduce N amount of risk. Right. Um, but here we're shifting it towards, no, there's another reason why we want these small batches. And that, that is so that we can react to knowledge gained. Yes. Uh, knowledge gained um, with respect to, hey, is this causing pain? Or is this creating delight? And I like delight. Delight your customers. <laughs> it's sad that that meme ended here within Microsoft. No one talks about customer delighters really much anymore. Um, no. But anyway, <laughs> it is what it is. The other thing that I think is important around building a quality culture, um, it is all about knowledge share. Uh, knowledge sharing in any system that um, in the software world, I'll, I'll just, I'll just say it this way. If you have a system in the software world that contains human beings and you're not working towards um, creating something that optimizes on Utilizing the knowledge within those human beings, you're really um, putting yourself uh, not in harm, but but you're slowing yourself down. Software is knowledge work. Yes, it is. And the great thing about uh, knowledge is that the more you give away. Uh, the more there is in the system. 
a quality community given given an agile world and sort of an emergent goals, right? Um, by by constructing a a place where ideas can come together, what happens? New ideas get formed. Right? We, we may have mentioned this before uh, a thousand times. <laughs> yes, and I can't hit it enough. Uh, we in the knowledge worker business, uh, you want to make a mechanism where. The, these ideas are coming together. New ideas form and tested and try out. And that is one place, particularly if it's around the quality culture, that's one place where you're really going to accelerate the achievement of shippable yep. quality. And when I think about a high-quality culture, I'm thinking about a culture that is purely in optimizing mode. So they're in a they're just in a place where everything is about learning and adjusting. So to recap the first twenty minutes here, a quality culture is a shared mindset about how we're going to make quality software, and we do it. It's important to do it because it enables us to accelerate the achievement of shippable quality. It enables us to much better do that. I'm going to tweak that because I don't think it's about how we're going to make software. I think it's about how we're going to solve our customers' problems yes. through software. Right, because customers don't want software. They want their damn problem solved. Right. So I want to do some what, like what is a quality culture, and then a whole bunch of how. Is yeah. that cool? Does that fit in your agenda? Well, so the second part, the second part of the, uh, the principle, principle specifies that one of our goals is to coach, lead, and nurture the team towards a more mature that quality is, culture. That is the how. So for, I want to talk about what a more mature quality culture is and then how we lead teams towards that. It, the second yeah, half and is then the how. What is a more mature? Because um, yeah, to me, I, that that invokes thoughts of any number of maturity models so I have a thing against maturity models. So I, 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 and only because, and I can get over it, but I've just seen them used wrong so many times. And with the biggest culprit being CMMI, which a lot of our European listeners have had to deal with. And two huge problems I have with models like that is CMMI, you go from lockstep to level one to level two across a whole bunch of different areas. Whereas it may even make business sense for you to grow your maturity model in different rates and different areas or attributes of quality. The other thing is, is a lot of companies wore their CMMI level like a badge and it turned into much like tester certification, a, a maturity model certification level where people would pay money. And if you, if you paid more, you might get a higher rating. So it's just, I don't like that. I like the model as being a discussion point, not a blueprint. It's a way to figure out where you want to improve. So that disclaimer in in front of it, yes, it's a maturity model, but please use the use the model. All models are wrong. Some are useful. It's a model for learning and a model for assessing and figuring out what you want to do, not a badge to wear. I don't disagree. Uh, maturity model, uh, the one thing quite honestly that 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 I am I'm not wired so maturity models are great because they kind of I, I like them to, to help describe sort of uh, a known set of patterns uh, around what typically people will once they've mastered a particular amount of knowledge, where they immediately realize, oh, if we mastered this amount of knowledge, we'd be able to do these other things, right? Um, uh, if you remember the Asira uh, uh, stuff we talked about here a long time ago around data, right? Uh, align, collect, inform, recommend, act, right? That, that's kind of a, a journey, but it wouldn't take much to convert it to a maturity model, Uh describing 
going from data oblivious to mm-hmm. data centricity, right? Um, but I don't, I don't prefer that. I prefer sort of a, a guiding light. Yes. And part of the main reason why is uh, I view them as well-known sort of practice patterns. Sure. But I see them often being referred to as best practices, and that concept offends me. Yeah, it's easy to use them incorrectly. I like the idea of – here's another problem. On the plus side for the model, here's a problem they help solve, and then we'll talk less abstractly and talk about a maturity model that I'm building for my team uh, or my teams. I think often people see, okay, we're here, current state. We want to be there, the desired state. Let's just do that. But you can't. There's a whole – 100 baby steps in between. So one thing a maturity model like Construct does is lets you see some progression towards infancy to adulthood. It lets you see what adolescence and 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 teenage years are, are like in between as a metaphor for maturity mm-hmm. or an actual, not really a metaphor because that actually, actually is maturity. I've been working on trying to figure out, trying to walk the talk and figure out what is a maturity model if we're going to figure out how to improve this uh, so I started thinking a lot about what attributes make up a quality maturity. And I, and I came up eventually with what I think is a pretty good list. Uh, it's probably not perfect and because everything I do iterates all the time. It doesn't matter. But I came up with eight or nine different areas. There's testing breadth, which is like we just do functional testing to we test – we actually – contextually test all the things that, you know, we know when the test, reliability, security, et cetera. We do the right right breadth of testing. There's the quality and test ownership. Are the testers doing all the testing? Are, or are the testers merely coaching in some cases, principle number seven, maybe not needed because the team just gets testing, testing as part of what they do. Listening to a podcast this morning, I won't name it because it wasn't very good, but it, even in talking about DevOps in the, in the podcast I was talking about, they were still referring to testing as this unique phase that happened during the process. I just it just made my head shake a little bit. Uh, bug life cycle. We've talked about bug backlogs and how those are a bottleneck. I think uh, there can even be a maturity of how you deal with those from the traditional bug backlog on one end all the way to working with a zero bug policy and bugs are dealt with very efficiently and quickly as they come in. Uh, I know you say this isn't part necessarily part of well, not the tester's job, but we don't talk a lot about code correctness and code quality. But I, th- I think there is a maturity in code quality, code correctness tools, how you use coverage analysis tools, uh, et cetera, in your life cycle as part of your CI. I think you have to do those in order to reach levels of quality elsewhere. Uh, yeah, that that th- these are for me. They don't have to be for yeah, you. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, d- customer, d- the data analysis we've talked about a lot of times. It, this is basically can go, maybe not align exactly with your uh, your model of oblivious, aware, driven, centric, but uh, there is a level of w- starting with oblivious and moving to data centric. Actually, maybe maybe those, maybe that that maturity model fits really well within this quality culture. The development approach. This is where the agile practices come into place. You have you can have a total ad hoc, people work on whatever, it's done whenever sort of thing. Or on the other end of the higher maturity, you have super small batches and uh, and the process processes used to build the software or to think about how things are broken down are, are very mature and efficient. And just a few more. Um, learning and improvement where do you bother to learn from, on one end, maybe you don't even bother to learn mistakes or things where blame happens. Uh, but on the other end, every failure is an opportunity to learn and that opportunity is taken. Uh, very good retrospectives happen on these teams, et cetera. And then finally, you need some level of leadership support. Uh, and not, I don't think this is leadership mandating everyone follow all these other practices. I think for culture change, one of the things, it doesn't have to be like the person at the top leadership support. This can be, when you see good quality practices happening, you need people who will point them out and celebrate them. People that will need that reinforcement of excellent, this team is doing blah, or this person is doing blah, this is great. You need a level of support. If you have a shared vision or shared values around quality, uh, reiterating those. 
Pat Lencioni in his book, The Advantage, talks about the power of organizational health, which has a lot to do with uh, mature quality, organizational health with product quality. And his four steps, which are really interesting, and I love them for building a healthy organization, are to create a cohesive leadership team, uh, uh, create, uh, create a vision, clarify the vision, communicate the vision, and recommunicate the vision. That was five, so, so two of those are actually uh, combined. But it's about if you have beliefs or values in how you're approaching your engineering efforts or how you approach solving customer problems, you should live those. How many times, giving example from Microsoft, how many times in your Microsoft career, which is over 20 years now, right? Yeah, almost 25. Wow, I didn't make it that far. Um, Have you seen some vision get blasted out, whether for like for your organization, and then no reinforcement of it, nothing ever happened with it again. It kind of faded away. People didn't know what it was. All the time. (laughs) If you're really serious about this, you need to make sure people, it's part of how people function. Uh, Unity has these uh, customer values around democratize game development, solve hard problems, enable enable developer success, uh, which actually come up in conversations all the time. I hear stories from my Amazon friends about how their values come up in meetings all the time, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, I think if you're going to have, if you really want to reinforce and ingrain a shared mindset, you need to uh, reiterate and clarify and celebrate uh, those values. The one thing I didn't hear in in all, a lot of that, like I would actually, and maybe maybe that's the right thing in the maturity model we're in right now uh, with respect to to MT, although it is interesting. Um, so Alan asked me on Slack just the other day that, uh, uh, or maybe you made a statement around surprised, not surprised at how the the community at large is responding to MT, right? Um, we're, we're sort of, we're sort of, if I were to put it this way, it's sort of polarizing. There's one set of folks that seem to be saying, ah, that's what we do. Thanks for giving a name to the practice, something to that effect. And then there's uh, another set of folks that that are kind of uh, going, oh, that will never, ever, ever, ever work. Right and yeah, there's 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 folks in between, but that's sort of where I see the the polarization going. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of in between. I do talk to a bunch of people who go, "That's yeah, that's where I want to be. We're not there," which yeah. I think is actually a much better place to be in than that'll never, never, never work because uh, you're already proven wrong. It does work. Yeah. Uh, uh, those the the folks that that claim it'll never work, my, um, it, it, I just sort of uh, ignore them. And I used to look at them and go, "All right, um, do you not pay attention to what's happening in this space?" And um, I basically found out that the answer to that is. No, <laughs> right, and um, I neither have the time nor the patience to sit down with them and walk them through what they uh, should have been paying attention to. Um, on quality culture, so I think a lot of those techniques and a lot of those approaches are some are, are a lot of places where where people can start with today. Um, I'd really like to see this shift towards more, again, it is not focused on the process. It is not focused on any particular technology stack. This is primarily around people. People 
not only in terms of, I, I have said this on many times before, anytime you're trying to make a change, there are three things that you need to change simultaneously. The people, the technology, and the processes. So we talked about the technology, but if you, if you change the technology but don't change the people's mindset, you're not going to be able to uh, impact the, the process, which is the glue between technology and people. And you can't change people without the why. You can't. It sure helps a lot. You can change people without the why. You could use command and control aspects. But I recommend strongly against that because it has a top end on how you scale. Absolutely. Absolutely. One thing I want to bring up, and then I want to dive into the how. I think this, if I do it right, it'll segue. Uh, the method I use to come up with those list of quality attributes I wanted to improve, and you should come up with your own. Don't copy mine. You can, but you shouldn't. The method I use is out of a, this book I've referenced a lot on this podcast and in, in my blog and et cetera, a book called Leadership on the Line by Ron Heffitz. And this is where this concept of adaptive challenges come from that I mentioned earlier on the episode. And one of the things you do to help solve an adaptive problem is to identify the current state and the desired state. And I, what I did was a variation on that. I thought about what are – I just basically affinity exercised – uh, by myself, all the different things I thought, all the different engineering teams I work with, and even indirectly, what would that minimum level look like? And then for all those things I thought about, what would the highest level look like? And then I did some consolidation where I was like, oh, so these things are the same as these things. Right? That's where I eventually got down to those eight or nine categories I have. And then once I vetted sort of that beginning stage, and then the end stage, I filled in a couple levels in between and ended up with a for better or for worse maturity model to be used as a discussion point to figure out how teams can improve their quality culture. You can do this exercise yourself with the things that you care about for your team in your context. So now that we have that, uh, the next step, and this is going to be different for everyone as well, the next step is about making that change happen. That's where the leadership that's where the leadership aspect and the community building aspect of this principle come into play. Yeah, the I definitely view uh, the community building part of this is is growing other leaders. There's another book I, I, I can't remember the name of, but another model of leadership where you have to be in a position of leadership and then have people's permission to lead them, which is about establishing trust. And there's a few levels in between. And, and the, one of the higher levels is you're able to, you're not able to, uh, more of your focus is on building other leaders. And uh, I realized for better or for worse, uh, Brent just flipped off his computer. Uh, a lot of, my success, and by my success is in helping move myself out, not of a job, but out of a role, is I need to, that is hinged on my ability to make the people that work for me now good leaders who can build other leaders. So they need to be, in, much as I'm worried about building community and, and, and leadership, they need to be able to be leaders and build community as well. They need to build their own quality communities and quality cultures in the teams they work on. So I've done a lot of, over the years, a lot of leadership training. One of the things uh, I'll, I'll absolutely share, whenever a mentee comes to me and says, hey, I want to be a lead, uh, I could tell you, I don't know, the 80% chance that this speech is going to load. You want to know what the single most important aspect of a leader is? Please tell me. They have followers. True. This seems like a tautology. It is not. This ties right into that principle. It's one thing to be in a position of leadership. It's another level up to have followers or as uh, this uh, Maxwell, maybe? as the author, uh, to have permission to lead. 
Yeah, there's a that it's it's aligned with that permission to lead. Um, the you cannot be reorged into or out of leadership. You can be reorged into and out of management. Leaders have followers, and a follower is someone who has made a conscious decision to go in the same direction you are. Right? And so there's to to be good at leadership, you have to be good at communication so mm-hmm. that your goals are clear. Um, and you have to be good at uh, influencing and ins- and inspiring others to decide to to walk your path, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, this, uh, and then there's another speech that um, in this leadership training I've done years ago. Right, there's this definition. It's somewhat controversial, but I think it applies here. How would you define empowerment? Empowerment is very simple. Empowerment means others would make the same decision you would in your absence. That's an interesting definition. Yeah. It's some, as I mentioned, it's somewhat controversial. But <clears throat> if you empower someone to make the decision, what essentially are you doing? You're essentially saying... Uh, do you think you're you're saying? So let's say you empowered one of your employees to make a decision. In that decision, with the same data, is diametrically opposed to the decision you would make. Right there, there's a strong chance you're going to stop their decision making process. Right, unless you unless you can springboard it in, in, into a learning lesson or a, some. along these lines, this is important. And I just read something in this recently, and I wish I could would have wrote it down. But what's the difference between delegation and empowerment? Oh, um, that's actually pretty. Delegation is I decide, you do. <laughs> um, empowerment. It, uh, uh, is essentially you decide. And we do. We do, you do, someone yeah. else does. I think the do part is irrelevant there. Right? Yep. All right, where are we going with this? Uh, we were trying to veer towards and in and dancing around the how. how. Yeah, so... Uh, you should take point on that one in this conversation because you've done it a bajillion times. Try stuff, fail, learn. The exact in, – in organizational change and in, in improving quality in the how, it's just like a, it's just like good agile software development. You need to – don't try and make sweeping changes at once. Don't – sweep in with mandates and saying we're doing blah, 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 blah. Try little things. Stuff works. Do more of it or try more things. When things don't work, figure and don't just give up. Do that pivot or persevere the same as you do with experimentation and figure out, well, why didn't this work? What should we do differently? Uh, what areas do you want to focus on? And all those areas I gave earlier, uh, do you want to, would you want to work on improving all of those at once? Maybe, probably not. Figure out which ones are the most bang for the buck, but make small changes. If you're, if you have a huge bug backlog, say, okay, we're not going to have any bugs long, any bugs. Stage one, let's see if we can get down to no bugs older than a month, three months, whatever makes sense for your team. Figure out what the right baby steps are. Going back to Heffitz, leadership is disappointing people at a level they can absorb. So if you try and make a sweeping change, people are going to be too disappointed. They're going to shut down. They're going to rebel. Uh, this falls into the boiled frogs parable, but all these things work. You need to make lots and lots of small changes and evaluate all the time. That said, do you think ripping the Band-Aid never works? I think you need to look first. Uh, ripping the Band-Aid can work. Uh, I have been on teams where we said, screw it. We're, we're killing. We're just going to claim bug bankruptcy and close anything older than 
you know, two weeks, fix all the rest and start from there. So you can rip the Band-Aid off if you, but you kind of need a majority or a large part of team buy-in or that culture or that or those shared values first. So you need to, you do need to take time to see whether it's, to see if it really is a tourniquet. Yeah, I was, I was actually just thinking about that, right? I, I think I told this story last time um, where when I went to development in Bing, I started off with doing Scrum, but I described Kanban, and I said we're going to do Scrum on the way there, right? right and then, and when, then when Scrum failed, they said, uh, "How about this Kanban thing?" <laughs> right. And so, so in that particular case, it's a lot easier to rip rip the band aid when yeah. But the team was ready. The team was ready for it. They asked you. They were ready for that change. Well, they they did. They still didn't understand it. They were just like, "Well, this sucks. Let's not do this." Yeah, again. look, just don't yeah. assume everything's a band aid, and don't assume everything's a tourniquet. Right. Disappoint people at a level they can absorb, or as I paraphrase, at a level they can tolerate. And yeah, there's there is this concept. You've heard of out of the box thinking. Sure. Love out-of-the-box thinking. It's fun. Have you ever tried to implement something that was out-of-the-box? Give me your example, and then we'll get back on track. Well, so some the, the, the example I'm thinking of right now is when I was uh, leading in, in a media center, and they had gone six years and never passed BVTs. Okay, and it's not a great example, but it's it. Um, they were holistically entrenched, and this idea is the way we we need to move forward. Like they, uh, as I described back then, they were heavily solidified in. No, what we need to do is have our end-to-end tests in our BBT suite, right? And this is just a horrible idea. But their whole organization was bought in, but they couldn't get BBTs to pass. Uh, in that particular case, and I met with a whole lot of resistance, but I basically said, no, we're going to stop that. Yeah. yeah. That's just a, a dumb definition of what a BVT is. No, for sure. But, it, I mean, the point the point is, I was surrounded with people that said, we've tried everything. Last six years, we tried everything. We can't make this change, right? And some of the times, like one of my favorite things to do is when I realize that a change has to be made, but people want to see something, but they don't feel it can be done because of politics or... or um, you know, interactions or people complaining, right? That's a great place to just rip the Band-Aid. But it takes... Sure. But you're, you're out of the box and what turns out to be a very, very small box. Yeah. If... So I think the point is you want to try these little things. They can be things that are incremental or things that can be incremental changes from where you are or maybe some out-of-the-box things that can leapfrog you. Uh, so what I was going to say, if, if it's too out of the box, then what you want to do is around the box thinking. So you, earlier you were talking about where are you now, where do you want to be, right? And uh, a third step is, all right, what is the first action that you should take towards where you want to be? And communicate that one action as actually the goal. There are a zillion quotes you can go look up on the internet that basically say, the hardest part of any change is starting. Yeah. So for anything you want to improve, just start. Just try something. Then the other bit I wanted to get to is, uh, so you're going to try a bunch of stuff. You're going to use different kinds of thinking. You're going to reflect and try and find new things to do. To You're trying to create a learning organization. I think it's a lot of parallels between the learning organization, as Peter Senge talks about, and a culture of quality. In uh, Senge wrote the fifth discipline where the five disciplines, well, the fifth most important one is systems thinking, which I think is highly related to a quality culture. Uh, but once you start getting these changes to happen, you need that reinforcement. You need 
some celebration of, hey, we're able to cut down our cycle time, blah, 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 here. Hey, we're able to learn this thing from data we weren't able to do before. Oh, hey, it looks like um, we haven't had a bug older than seven days in uh, three months. Uh, those little, you don't need to have a huge party for all these things, but celebrate the things that are leading you in the direction you want to go. And by celebrate, I mean, you know, call them out in a Slack channel, uh, call them out in uh, a standup, give some recognition for those things. Cause those, that recognition to some people often is worth more than giving them a monetary bonus, especially in front of people, but it also motivates others to, uh, try and model that behavior. So those things as a leader are, are very, very important. You want to inspire your followers, to use your language from earlier, to model the behavior to, to the behavior you want to see. So when you see what you when you see what you like, make sure other people know that you like it. Um, or know that it's appreciated. You have to be careful with that, right? Because uh, it, it, it does it can run the risk. Uh, that get misinterpreting. So you want to make sure that what whatever you're celebrating, you're celebrating it as uh, a team goal achieved and that it's not being interpreted as, oh, I'm going to do this because this is what makes Alan happy and then I'll get a good review. Yeah, it's, well. Right, because that re- then reinforces. I, I see how that could happen aspect. at Microsoft. So... Uh, <laughs> So that is important, depending on the culture where you are. I'm glad I was able to load, uh, you know, load up another Microsoft thing. Well, it's a company obsessed with competition, both against other companies and internally with teams against each other and people against each other. That is, for better or for worse, the culture that drives Microsoft. Yeah, that that aspect is is um, the intra team uh, competition. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you and say it's not there anymore, but it is vastly. It was there in full force a year and a half ago. It, it's vastly so, toned down. All right, I, I can't comment after that. <laughs> it is. All right. Anything else you want to talk about as far as uh, principle number four? No, I think we're out of time anyway. Excellent. <laughs> well, uh, one last thing to say is Vive la France. France just beat Uruguay. Oh. France will go to the semifinal in the World Cup. I'm very excited. I predicted France would go to the final where they would lose to Germany, but Germany failed to make it out of the knockout stage. So uh, that happened. Uh, I picked a bracket before the, before the tournament started. And I get another long outro. The left side of my bracket was side with France. Perfect. I got everything right. The right side, Nothing. It's all a big mess of everything's wrong. Okay. Well, I am Alan. And I'm Brent. We'll see you next time. Bye.